When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is brought to you by Audible, the leading provider of audiobooks. Book Riot listeners can download a free audiobook on us and get an extended free trial of the service by going to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. This is the Book Riot Podcast, a weekly news show about what's new, cool, and worth talking about in the world of books and reading. This is episode 57, and we're recording on Friday, June 13th. I'm Jeff O'Neill, and I'm here with Amanda Nelson, one of the other, other editors of Book Riot. <laughs> Not a Rebecca Shinsky, one of the other, the the other, other. others. Uh, Amanda, welcome back to the Thank show. Thank you. Hello. Yeah, and... Um, we're in the middle of summer, and it was sort of a slow news week. But there's a couple of there's a couple of good stories um, to talk about here. I, you haven't been on in a few months, is that right? I can't remember the last That's time true. you were on. Yeah, yeah, it's been a while. And you're going to be appearing more regularly. We're going to make you do some of the work finally oh, around gosh. here. Make you earn your keep. How dare you? I know it really <laughs> seems unfair, doesn't it? Uh, corporate people are the worst. All right. So bad. Before we get into the week's news, let's talk about our first sponsor, "The Girl in the Road" by Monica Byrne. So, it's a futuristic Mumbai, and a young woman wakes up, and she's got five snake spikes on her chest. Mm. It's kind of like that version of that old urban legend about you woke you wake up in a in a bathtub full of ice. You know <laughs> what I'm talking liver. about? Yeah. Yeah. It's like and. I'd, what do they write on your chest? You have no kidneys or go to a doctor or something? I mean, it depends on which version. On which version. Yeah. Some version of, uh-oh, yeah. um, is written on your chest. You're missing an organ. So <laughs> Mina is the main character. She doesn't know how or why, but she must get out of India and get to Ethiopia where she was born. And she doesn't know why. She just has this urge to get there. So she goes and she hears about this particular place that maybe can hear, heal her. It's kind of this magical place called the Trail. Um, and she goes out on a foot, you know, like a, a walking journey um, across the Middle East. So it's, it's, that's part of the story. And then there's a, another girl, Mariama, who's a, from a different time, and she's on her own quest. She, she, her mother gets sexually assaulted um, and sort of takes up with a caravan of people that she doesn't know to get the hell out of wherever she is. Um, and then she meets somebody else who becomes a protector and then these sort of stories get together. Um, so it's, it's, a mad, it's a fantasy, but kind of not a high fantasy. It's a near-future fantasy dystopia set in the Middle East, a um, couple of young Muslim women who are in trouble and trying to figure out how to get out of it. It's got blurbs from Neil Gaiman, John Scalzi, and others. Um, I think it's the kind of book you're interested in. You're already interested in, so I'm not going to sell it anymore. <laughs> so that's The Girl in the Road by Monica Byrne. Thank you I so much that. for sponsoring the show. All right, let's do a little bit of follow-up um, before we get into Complete Cranky. We may end up in Complete Cranky today. I'm pretty Th- sure. There's a really good there. chance. Yeah, we're, we're, uh, we're going for it. So Hachette um, fired another salvo in its ongoing battle, which uh, met the war metaphor I could do without, as I've said before, but mm. their ongoing dispute with Amazon, they released some numbers. And I think they did this to show just how important it is to them to not get royally worked over by Amazon. So they said that Amazon has a 78% market share of Hachette ebook titles in the UK and 60% share in the US. That's a lot. And the word is, is that Amazon is trying to extract even more margin from ebooks. So this is about ebook margin. And some of this wasn't released by Hachette, but some insidery gossip was you know, that the new deal would cost Hachette between 25 and $33 million in lost revenue per year. Um, and, I mean, the other thing we know is that ebooks are growing not as fast as they have been over the last couple of years, but they're growing. So Hachette, I'm guessing, is saying, you know what, before this gets even worse, we're going to make a stand and maybe we'll lose some short-term revenue. But in the interest of getting a better deal... Um, let, let's take a little short-term pain and see if we can work something else out. 
Uh, I'm surprised this is still dragging on. When Shinsky and I first talked about this sometime back in the late 70s, um, <laughs> I thought it would be resolved already. I mean, are you surprised it's gone on this long? What do you think about this? I am. I mean, like, usually when you hear about Amazon pushing somebody like this, it's over in a week or two. Whoever they're pushing usually mm-hmm. just buckles, at least from my memory. I yeah. can't recall anyone actually, like, winning. Right. A sort of this sort well, of thing. I, I, think, I think the narrative of when McMillan... Um, fought with them and Amazon mm-hmm. removed the buy buttons. I think Macmillan technically, I mean, they came to some sort of compromise, but Macmillan got what they wanted. Out oh, okay. of that. That's my, now again, if, if the listeners out there know better, have a link. Um, my memory of it now is that people just say, yes, good for Macmillan. Um, they didn't defeat the man, but they came into a detente with the man. Um, so <laughs> Amazon I is the man. <laughs> uh, yeah. Well, many of them all at once. Yeah. Um, I don't know where this is going. I mean, Hachette might be thinking that this is a battle for the future of their company. Like they may think that we literally cannot be afford, we cannot afford to be in business at the rates they're asking. So we might as well not be. Um, I don't know. I can't think of any other reason for continuing to do that. I mean, 78% is a lot. It's so much. <laughs> it's, it's so very large. Like I'm usually not on board with the whole Amazon is a monopoly thing, but yeah. 70%, I don't know. Yeah, of ebooks. I, I mean, they may well. And, and um, was it Susie that wrote a post for us last week or the week before about ha- Amazon is not a monopoly or a monopsony? Yes. Yeah. Um, and we did what she didn't look at. And I agree. I mean, I, I like the piece that she did, but one thing she didn't think about is sort of slicing up different kinds of market shares mm-hmm. um, of you know, say, just ebook titles in the UK, which I think the only reason. It, Amazon isn't as big here. I mean, 60% is still big. Is that Barnes & Noble, for all the, the maligning it gets, still, according to this article, has a 19% share right. of the American ebook market, according to Hachette. So basically, the UK is the same situation with no Barnes & Noble. Because um, I think the big, the big British chains like Waterstones um, or Foils, I'm not even sure Foils is a chain, they never really, they were reticent to get on with ebooks. Um, and Barnes and Noble was a little slow, but they did catch up for all the grief we give them. Um, they're still hanging in there. So yeah, after Amazon in the UK, it's Apple. I think you know. I, I was thinking about this the other day, and I've been buying a lot of my eBooks through Kobo, through um, Word Bookstore here in Brooklyn. Mm-hmm. I think maybe I should just get the get put hitch my wagon to Barnes and Noble for my book buying dollars. You think so? Well, <laughs> I. Uh, uh, uh. Well, I guess the thing I think about this is support the under, I mean, are you going to support the under underdog or the person that could actually provide some like meaningful pushback on Amazon? I don't know. Like if I'm betting where my dollars will do the most good in terms of making sure it doesn't turn into a total monopoly, probably supporting one independent bookstore doesn't do as much good as propping up Barnes and Noble in whichever way it can. I don't know if that makes any sense. No, it does. Um, I mean, again, my three five hundred dollars a month, um, a month—that would be a lot, actually. That three is... to five hundred dollars a year in book buying probably won't make that much difference, but it could make some difference, and it's the only kind of weapon I really have to um, to fight. I'm certainly—I don't—I'm not going to buy any more Amazon books. Um, I used to buy hardbacks from Amazon because they were, you know, half the price. Right. Um, but I'm going to find a different way of doing that. Do you still buy hardbacks? Uh for very special occasions. Oh, you know, okay. <laughs> when Toni Morrison descends from the mountain with a new book. Uh, Written on a stone tablet. Yeah, That's right. a hardback right there. That's a hardback, yeah. It's um, $10,000, <laughs> and I have to buy a whole new apartment for it. Uh, I think I'm going to buy the new Marilyn Robinson that comes out in the fall in hardback because I've got my nice little set right there. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm trying to think what else. I know you don't. You like hardbacks. They're, they're your jam, but that's for pragmatic purposes, right? Uh, yeah, mostly because my children will chew off paperback book covers. <laughs> they chew them off? I mean, they're, they're three, so hopefully yeah. they're not growing out of that. But right. yeah, unsupervised, it's bad. It'll be idea. funny that your bookshelves like, will have this span of time where it's like everything from a certain time period is just hardbacks. <laughs> yes, or has NAMARC in it. <laughs> yeah, or some co- – like, because your reading preference is a paperback? Is that what you're saying? Well, no, now it's now it's hardcover because I've gotten used to it oh, by necessity. Oh, I see, yeah, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, also just to follow up on this, iBooks has a 13% share of digital sales from Hachette in North America. So, and then everything else there, others is 8%. And that includes Kobo, Google, and 
others, I guess that might be like Zola books or I don't know, the oh, yeah. Sony bookstore, which is closed down, um, things, things of that nature. So, I mean, if, if I'm Hachette, I understand what they're doing. Um, I don't know what I would do if I were them. Because 78, I mean, if Amazon is essentially trying to squeeze your margin to zero, then you might as well just not sell with them. Like try to yeah. weaken them as much as possible. Um, the problem is, is it goes on too much longer. You're going to have trouble signing clients. Oh. Do you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, so the big, they're not guaranteed sales. Yeah, like because yeah. the big names, Gladwell, Colbert, those are the ones that have been publicized recently. Um, I'm trying to think. I mean, there's a bunch of other names in there. But like those are big names. So, But who's the next big name? Or like let's say Gladwell, if his contract say were up right now, would you sign on with Hachette? Well, I mean, I guess it depends on how much you want to come out as like a anti-Amazon, right? you know, like gladiator yeah. or whatever. I'd like to see Ann Patchett say, you know what? My next book deals with Hachette, you know? Yeah, right. The, you know, some of the real <laughs> anti-Amazon um, zealots uh, would be interesting to see. Or like Sherman Alexie, right? Who really hates Amazon. I wouldn't, that, that's the shoe I keep waiting to drop. That It just isn't going to, I guess. Is it? I mean, someone's going to do that at some point, right? Sign with Amazon. Or, or sign, sign a contract Hachette. with a publisher saying, I don't want to have my book sold on Amazon or something like that. I just, I don't know. I don't know if anybody's that pure. <laughs> really? You don't, you don't think that even if you're, it's illogical, like someone wouldn't just try. I don't know. I, I keep feeling like someone would. Um, well, I feel like if someone was going to, it would have been Sherman Alexie. Yeah. And I don't think he has. And he's with SNS. Is that right? I don't know. I'm not sure. I don't know. Anyway, it, it's one of the big five and none of them have said, um, uh, that they're not going to sell with Amazon. But if he wanted to, he could say, he could even say publicly, like, you know, my next book, I'll sign with Hachette for taking a stand, you know, even something like that. Oh, he is with Hachette. I'm sorry. Little Brown. Oh. <laughs> well, well, for no some wonder. of his books, yeah. Um, but he is long, I mean, even before this, he was like, screw those guys. Um, he's probably, of the people that have any platform that I pay attention to at all, is the loudest anti-Amazon author, as far as I can tell. Yeah, maybe... James Patterson. I don't know if James Patterson is so much anti-Amazon as he is pro-indie. Yeah, I think that is different. That's definitely... I I haven't seen James Patterson make a single anti-Amazon comment. He's made a lot of pro-indie comments, but it hasn't gone so far as an anti-Amazon comment, as far as I can tell. Where where do you do your e-books? Is it just all Edelweiss? Uh, Edelweiss and, oh gosh, Overdrive. Overdrive, the library. I I do. I like to use my library. I use my library every week. Overdrive is so whatever. So Oyster. Oh, yes. Point. Are you, wait, when did you start using Oyster? Recently? Oh, like two months ago. And how do you find it? I just love it. Yes, I'm okay. sorry, Overdrive. Like, ugh. I do. I mean, I am one of these people who feels like morally obligated mm-hmm. to support my library, but it's just, I hate weights. I hate weights. Yes. Just, there it is. And yeah. it's just so much prettier and whatever. Well, those are the arguments I always made when we were first talking about Oyster. People were like, you know, you can get, we have a Netflix for books and it's called your library. Oh, and I'm whatever. like, have you tried Overdrive? <laughs> if you have, then you wouldn't be saying that. Yeah. Um, because, you know, for all the reasons you mentioned, it's just a much better interface. You don't have to wait. Oyster doesn't have everything. Um, has a lot more. Now there's a couple of big five publishers, but for backlist, occasional reading, it's pretty great um I don't, it oh, has just, a bigger selection than my library does i mean this is purely anecdotal but when i go to search some i always check my library first and if it doesn't have it then i go to oyster mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and that is happening with more frequency yeah 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 it's a nice it's a nice backup so for i think it's ten dollars a month now it's a yeah. nice piece of the reading puzzle um i'll be interested to see in a year or two how much if the subscription services like scribd or oyster or i think there's a couple like well uh, I think those are the two big ones right now. I thought I heard of another one. Oh, Librify, but I don't think it's subscription. If they become even a single digit percentage of the ebook revenue, some of these. I hope so, because I don't buy ebooks. Like, yeah. I just don't spend. If I'm going to spend dollars on a book to own, I want it on my shelf. And yeah. I find that with Oyster, I. I read it and then I go buy the hardcover. Oh, really? Yeah, well, and I do that with the library too. I've always done that. Um, Man, you are just, like, just you're so odd. I know. You're so I weird. Know. Oh, the book industry loves you. They want 10 million Amandas. I know. I'm, I'm your, I'm your customer guy right here. This gal right here. (laughs) You should just like just every morning you make like a tithe at the publishing industry. Just like at each of the big five, you just like leave a a billfold. 10% of my (laughs) my income. Gross not net. (laughs) I'm sure. I wonder, I'm a little surprised that Hachette, this would be a good opportunity for them to sign up with Scribd or Oyster. 
while they're yeah. in this fight. Like get some money for your backlist while you're not getting any money. Well, actually the eBooks I think are still available on Amazon. Um, it's the, they're using the print book leverage is what Amazon is doing. It's saying it's not and, available or something and so on and so forth. It's very strange. But you can still buy the books for, on Amazon from like dealers. Yes. Right? You also can so, do that. Right. And it doesn't Because I went the, on there to get a, a copy of like of a Salinger, I think of Franny and Zoe and, hmm. and, um, you can't. You can't oh. get Franny and Zoe on Amazon. But you can get it through the dealers. Right. And I don't think it affects any of the Hachette titles on Audible, as far as I'm aware, which Audible is um, an Amazon subsidiary, wholly owned subsidiary. Uh, so that's – anyway, we're following up on that. Um, a little of, of other news this week that came out. Um, and we have a new Poet Laureate. Um, on Thursday, the Library of Congress announced that Charles Wright – W-R-I-G-H-T is the new Poet Laureate. He is a retired professor at the University of Virginia. Um, and apparently he's won all the awards already. This is the, <laughs> this is, this is the end. Pulitzer, <laughs> National Book Award, and some poetry prizes I don't know anything about. Um, he lives in Charlottesville. And it's funny, he got a call. He says, I don't know what I'm supposed to do now. <laughs> like, he doesn't know what the – so it's, one of those, it's not like they were uh, – they were, you know, in contact with him before and saying, if you, you just get named it, whether you want it or not. So next year, it could be you, Amanda. You could be oh, the great. U.S. Poet Laureate if you're not careful. If you don't, you know. Oh, well, I'll be sure to not publish <laughs> yeah, right. poetry anywhere. <laughs> um, succeeding Natasha <laughs> Trethui, which has Trethui? to be a Hogwarts professor. Um, <laughs> She's a, another Southerner. Another Southerner. Um, and I've read some of Wright's poetry, and it is beautiful. There's a lot of landscape and pastoral stuff. Um, which I like, I should say. Um, so if you're interested in poetry, or even are not, that's news, but you can p- check um, check out his back works, more than a dozen works of poetry. And apparently, I saw um, Teju Cole said that Scar Tissue is his favorite Charles Wright collection. So if you're, look- if you're interested in Charles Wright, and want some place to start, um, I've never been led astray by Teju Cole's poetry recommendation. So that's Scar, try, Scar Tissue by Charles Wright. This New York Times article said that, says that he's got a, a Dante-esque cycle of trilogies. Whoa. Called the Appalachian Book of the Dead. What? And I am going to be all over I was, I, Talk about burying the lead. <laughs> Jeez. It's like way down here. Mr. Wright's haunting poems, many of them gathered in a Dante-esque cycle of three trilogies known informally wow. as the Appalachian Book of the Dead. Wow. I love me some Dante. Wow, that's interesting. I might have to take a look at that as well. Um, I also use this opportunity um, to talk about something that happened a few weeks ago that Rebecca and I were in BEA and just missed it and happened while we were planning on recording. But um, as most of you probably heard, Maya Angelou passed away on May 28th um, in North Carolina. Uh, A long, illustrious career. I mean, I don't know what to say about Maya Angelou that, you know, you probably don't already know. I was... I was thinking about it when she died and Charles Wright being named Poet Laureate made me think of it again is, man, now who's the most famous American poet, living American poet? That, oh. that is a rough question, isn't it? Living? Yeah. Uh, I've got, no, a, I've got a name, but... Who? I was in, Billy Collins? Oh, yeah. Probably, right? Okay, the only reason I know about Billy Collins is because of YouTube. Because of that <laughs> three-year-old. Have you seen that video? No. <laughs> this is ridiculous. There is a video on YouTube, it's a viral video, of a three-year-old reciting a Billy Collins poem, and it is the most adorable thing that I've ever seen. And that's the that's how I discovered Billy Collins. It was a viral video on YouTube. That because will be I'm in the show notes for anyone who's interested. I yeah. will find that later. Um, but, it's the bread, I think the bread and the knife is the, the name the of the knife. poem. Okay. Because uh, the other, right. like, read a dove, I guess, or, um, boy, I'm really having a hard time. There could be someone that, um, someone would say the name and I'd be like, duh. Um... But, um, yeah, I mean, my Angelou was the, you know, the, the, the most prominent American poet for the last probably 20 years, I would say. Um, and interesting, probably not as well known for her poetry as for her memoirs. Um, yeah. So, anyway, she passed away. Fare thee well, my Angelou. All right. So, shall we, let's do our cranky now. Now that we've uh-huh. done our elegies, let's do cranky. Um, probably the big story of last week, I mean, it wasn't even a news story. It was just a piece published in Vanity Fair about the goldfinch and how, mm-hmm. I guess, a bunch of, oh, I don't even know how to say this, <laughs> professional critics don't okay. like it. 
the book. In fact, they hate the book, and they're super, super cranky that it won the Pulitzer Prize. Um, Francine Prose, cranky. James Wood, cranky. No surprise there. Um, who else was named in this? I, I remember when the announcement came out, um, Catherine Schultz, the New York Magazine book critic, super cranky. Um, though I don't think she's quoted here. So, Lauren Stein? Yeah, right. The yeah. editor of the Paris Review. Super mm-hmm. cranky. Um, Kakutani liked it. Take that for what it's worth. Um, but so what is this article about exactly? I, you and I were kind of talking about it on Twitter the other day. But like, what are they trying to say? It's kind of hard to explain. Can we take their position, the cranky critics position just for a minute? Like, what are they trying to say about this? Uh, well, the cranky critics are trying to say that the book is childish. Yeah. And, and doesn't deserve. Right. What, because and that we're stupid for liking it. Is yes. that what it is? Yeah. Okay. Yes. Or that we're childish for liking it or, you know, it's like, I don't, it seems as if they're taking the popularity of the book to make a statement about how dumb right. the general reading population is. Well, that's, that's as tale as old as time. Like yes. critics the, taking, saying things that are popular must be bad because they're popular. Ergo, they're bad because they're, po-, you know, like yeah. just sort of getting into a tizzy of circular logic. Um, did you like the goldfinch? I loved it. Yeah, I liked it too. It's, it's so Dickensian, and, and that's my jam. Yeah, right. It's you know, it's big and it's naughty and it's um, ideas and interesting characters and locations. Um, the crux of the critique was you know that there's some cliche in it that the ideas are kind of jammed in at the end um, that the writing isn't particularly good. Whatever, like that. That's the the nature of the argument. I think the question you and I maybe are more interested in is a meta level question, which is who cares what the critics or like, do we care what critics say? Like, I mean, what do we want out of criticism? Maybe that's the way I'm trying to put it. Like, I guess I don't want them to be cranky, but what do we want out of our professional literary critics? We certainly know what they want out of us and that's to like the things they like. Yeah. But like, what do we want out of a critic? Do we want them to say things like that book that you got, gave that big award? It sucks or, I'm not really sure. I, I'm less sure about this than I've ever been, I have to admit. Um, I want, I think what I want is unemotional, and I don't know if this is possible, sure, but sure. A, unemotional criticism that isn't based in any sort of weird construct about, like, the critic's personal value mm-hmm. in him in him or herself, I guess. So, because they're, the reactions to the goldfinch are coming from a, it seems to me, a cranky, like, sort of jealousy maybe a little bit mm. and a bit of how dare the reading population decide that they love this giant literary novel even though I didn't you know it's just also it's kind of an it's just arrogance I guess so I would like to do away with that and then maybe I'll care what you say mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't know. yeah maybe that's childish in and of itself but it's right. like the tone more than it is yeah, I guess I'm thinking, like, let's say I'm, I'm reading about a book I haven't read in the New York Times, and there's a critic about, what am I looking for? I mean, because I don't think I'm looking anymore for them to tell me if it's good or bad. I don't think. Like, I don't, I'm not looking for reader's advisory from critics. Mm. I guess what I'm looking for in an ideal world for me is to te- for them to show me what's interesting about it, I guess. Yeah. Um, and because... I think that that's, can be more objective than taste, which this seems to be about taste, um, where analysis and interpretation doesn't necessarily need to be about taste. Um, because I think we, we all know that taste is so highly variable, even among people who read the same things or same genres, that it's almost like taking one person's opinion of, uh, you know, one person's taste and calling that criticism seems very strange to me. And maybe that's Maybe that's the crowdsourced user reviews have sort of done that to me. Like I can, I can kind of feel a consensus about whether a book is good or not just by looking at Twitter or other places. Mm-hmm. What I don't need is one person saying, I like this book or this is a good book. Like, uh, okay, I can get that sort of anywhere. And I guess what I want critics to do is something I can't get anywhere. And that seems to me is like, I'm going to look at this one character and think about this character in some kind of interesting way. And I'm going to avoid saying that this book is good or that this author's an idiot or you're an idiot for liking the book. It's the contempt. Yeah, it's the contempt, right? Like, listen to this, okay? Now, tell me if this makes any sense. So this is James Wood. 
mm-hmm. you know, he's the he's the the Don Corleone of literary <laughs> critics right now. Uh, there seems to be universal agreement that the book is a good read in quotation marks, but it can be a good story, good story, good storyteller in which some ways Tart clearly is, and still not be a serious storyteller. Where, uh. of course, serious does not mean the exclusion of the comic or the joyful or the exciting. Tart's novel is not a serious one. It tells a fantastical, even ridiculous tale based on absurd and improbable premises. <sighs> what? I tweeted that quote, yeah, actually, because it was now. just so ridiculous. A serious storyteller versus a, a good storyteller? I can't... Okay, the Goldfinch aside, I don't see how you could say anything like that about like the secret history... Because he yeah. seems to be making a statement about her entire body of work and not just the goldfinch. Like, she's not a serious storyteller in general. Well, guess, also, but. doesn't the, the, this novel is not a serious, it tells a fantastical, even ridiculous tale based on absurd and improbable premises. I mean, is all sci fi and fantasy just thrown out there with that? Oh, totally. Must be, right? Yeah. Has to be. But so, how is the story about a boy who experiences an attack of terrorism and then has a bunch of family and personal problems. Yeah. Like, how is that fantastical? I don't understand right. that at all. I mean, it's fair to, I mean, it's worth noting that Wood's self-proclaimed preference is sort of for psychological realism, yeah. which I'm not sure that, I'm not sure the goldfish necessarily falls into that, to that zone. Um, but yeah, like, He's trying to make it more objective. Did you see the movie saying is it's not about good and bad. It's about serious and unserious, mm-hmm. which he's trying, I think, to make more of an objective decision, right? Because good and bad is taste, which I think he implicitly knows. Yeah. Whereas serious feels like something a critic can delineate, right? Um, it has to be non-fantastical and based on probable non-absurd premises. Okay. Uh Sure, if that's what's floating your boat, but that doesn't necessarily float mine. But then it still comes back to good or bad, because then he's saying that something being serious is 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 better. Yeah. So he's still mm. making like a value judgment. Yeah. Uh, Lauren Stein says, um, Mary Gaskell's two girls, Fat and Thin, and Hilary Mantle's Wolf Hall may stand the test of time, not because her critic says they're good, but because they're about real life. What? <laughs> I don't want stage managing from a novel. I want fiction to deal in the truth. The truth, by the way. The one. The one truth. Um, so historical fiction. Yeah. I mean, it just seems... He just doesn't even know how to handle a book like The Goldfinch. Because like his rubric for how to deal with a book is, you know, it has conditions X, Y, and Z. And if it doesn't have those things, not a good book. Without sort of a wider, more open-minded exactly. sense of taste where, okay, good books can be about A, B, and Z, but they also can be about um, giraffes, um, mozzarella, and uh, bicycles. You know, just like a completely different <clears throat> rubric for things. Yeah, I was going to say that it's just closed-mindedness. And that's another thing that I think makes a bad critic, I mean, not to get into like the good or bad, sure, but right. a critic that I do not prefer. Undesirable, yeah, right. for you, yeah. <laughs> Because when you're presented with a novel that you don't know what, like you don't know how to deal with it or how to handle it or how to think about it, that should be a compelling thing, not right. a thing that automatically makes you go, "Well, this must be icky," because mm-hmm. I don't get it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Ugh, cranky. I'm I so mean, cranky. it's the same thing a lot of readers do when they say, "I hated that book because I didn't get it," mm-hmm. which I guess is fair. But you're not getting it doesn't necessarily say too much about the novel. Because if someone else does get it, well, then it's gettable. If that makes, I mean, right, right. I mean, I don't, I don't know that we're trying to uniformly apply standards to books which are variable, and even more interestingly, the readers themselves are variable. It just makes it the the structure just doesn't seem like there's much room for a criticism that's uniform and top-down and declarative. Like, it just doesn't really work. There's too much variation in topography for that to feel anything other than wildly and sort of bizarrely idiosyncratic to me. Um, Now, that doesn't mean you can't have your own ideas or opinions, but to be so worked up about it, that's like, you are all wrong about this Mm -hmm. book. Just feels like a dude howling at the moon to some degree. 
um, make an argument, like, here's why, you know, here's what I think about the goldfinch. That I would read. But then this move where it's then all of you who do like it right. are somehow flawed. I mean, that's, I guess that's where it really gets to me. Like, you can think and, whatever you want about the book. I don't really care. Right. But that move of, like, you're an idiot or you're unserious or somehow beneath whatever – that really makes me pissed off. And therefore, what, like, the book is dying and literature is dying and the reading population is whatever. But, like, that contempt that that is coming across here is is what makes me think that it's less about the actual book and more about, like, some sort of weird personal motive. Right. Yeah, it could be a way of, like, it could be, like, a, um, what's the old, a trans, like, the old Freudian term, transference. Transference. Like, he really wants to talk about YA or something. Maybe. You see what I'm getting at? Like he should go right for sleep. Yeah. <laughs> but or like he's, it's not the goldfinch so much. It's that the goldfinch is seen in the in the in the realm of which he thinks something else should be there, right? And so he's like he's punching down, and he's also punching down on everything below the goldfinch, right? Like that's also what's happening. In it's his because world. nobody asked him. Well, but they do. I think. I mean, isn't get, getting the prime literary critical spot at the New Yorker someone asking him? I don't know. I don't. I didn't. Know and we all subscribe to the New, <laughs> no, but we all we like we, we you know we all a lot of people subscribe to the New Yorker, so it has this patina, I would say, of authority, and he's got the slot there. Like I don't know. I just think like it's also weird. It even goes back to that thing where there'll be a blurb on a book, and it says something great about the book dash the New York Times, as if the 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 company itself wrote it, where it's just yeah. one person, right? It's one lady or one dude who happened to write the opinion and it was ascribed in the New York times when really it's just one person. Um, and I think that's helpful to remember as much as anything that all critics are just one person and there's really no agreement among critics about anything at all. So I don't know. I don't know if I've, I don't know what I want for, a, I don't know what the role of a, of a professional literary critic can and should be. I have no idea. I maybe their time has come and gone. Um, I think I'm more interested, like, I'm less interested in their opinion, like you were saying before, their opinions of individual books, because mm-hmm. I, I don't, I can get that anywhere, but I would be interested in uh, a more, like, 50,000 feet kind of criticism yeah. of books in general, or the literary world, or, like, trend pieces or whatever, but without the contempt for the reader. Yeah, because another thing, you know, um, we think of a professional as someone who spends more time and effort and gets paid for doing something you either can't or don't do on your own. Mm-hmm. Well, I can form an opinion of a book on my own, but yeah. what I can't really do is sort of, unless I take a lot of time is like talk about a book that's talked about or interesting or popular and then like give it some sort of context, like connect it to other things, show how it fits in with other books or how it's different. Mm-hmm. Um, I agree. I would like that a lot. Like, do some synthesis of connecting pieces across books. Um, like, for example, you know, the goldfish is a lot about art. So what if the piece about the goldfinch was about, you know, art in literature, and there were a couple other more recent books that dealt with art. It's like, here's what contemporary literature seems to be wrestling with when it comes to art. Now that I would be interested in. Yeah, me too. Not as much as the goldfinch sucks because of reasons. Um, and it's not even like their reasons are wrong. I actually agree with a lot of yeah. the criticism of, like, the characters are kind of stock, and the right. ending is a little weird. But, right. Uh, but that doesn't mean that I'm stupid because I still liked it. Yeah, no, yeah, that's right, that's right. Um, <laughs> but I guess the other thing is that cr- in order for critics to have a role, they have to figure out what that role is. And for them, the easiest role is our discernment is greater than yours. Yeah. Right? Which is so lazy. Yeah. I mean, because discernment isn't discernment isn't really a skill. That's just sort of a a practice. Like I think we all have our own sense of taste. It's not like you can refine your taste. It's like, what are you gonna I'm gonna go work on my taste today? I don't I just want to see how that works, right? Um so I, I do wonder, you know, it, this is a, a question people have been asking for several decades now. But what can a critic do for us? in making our reading lives more interesting and our aggregate reading culture more vibrant and interesting and, and useful. And I don't think it's this. I guess that's what I'm trying Whatever no. it else, is, whatever it is, it's not this. No. I, don't think. I think at the end of the day, like the value that, that Wood and, and other critics seem to place on being a serious, like a serious reader, a serious yeah. story, storyteller, whatever, no one cares about that anymore. Well, that so. is one thing interesting. We didn't talk, uh, when Rebecca and I were talking okay. about that YA piece in Slate, mm-hmm. 
I've always wanted, you know, the, the question I always want to ask is, you know, it, all, all these kind of debates on the critical establishment side end up as serious reading is good. If we don't do serious reading, our, liter- our, our culture will be impoverished. And I always want them to say the next sentence, which is how, like, what are we missing exactly? What? Yeah. And again, you and I both care about books a lot, and we think they're important, at least to our own lives. So we're, I think we're sympathetic to the argument that there's something that reading good, interesting, diverse, rich, complicated books does. But what that is, is very hard to articulate. And maybe that's what the critics should be doing is articulating oh, yeah. that difficulty rather than just sort of saying this thing is dumb and look how they use cliches. Mm-hmm. Cause I don't know. I mean, I don't know if you feel this way, but I, I do feel like reading good, interesting books is good for me. I mean, it's even sounds weird <laughs> to put it in those ways. Take your medicine. Jeff. Right. I know. Like, I'll eat my broccoli and my fiber tablets. Um, <laughs> but I don't really know why is it, do I think it's good? Cause it feels good. Like that's the, you know, that's the worst kind of reasoning, but I don't know. Like, uh, I don't have any good. What do we lose if we we don't think about books seriously, or art seriously, or movies seriously, or TV seriously? I, I don't really know what we lose. I mean, there, I don't know. It's such an individual thing. Like, yeah, the reason why I read complicated, diverse, et cetera, et cetera, books is to make me a more empathetic human being because on my own, I'm a very not that. Mm, Right. Um, But that's very much me. Like, I'm not an emotional person. I'm not compassionate. I don't care Mm -hmm. about anybody else. (laughs) So I read to fix that, you know, but not everyone is like that. So it's it's hard to make, like, general blanket statements about why books are good. Even that kind of acknowledgement would be useful. It's like, it's not the same for every individual person. And maybe reading serious literature Mm -hmm. and thinking about it seriously – if you, let's say, already empathetic and, uh, I don't know, curious about the world and, you know, you know about, you have a lot of experience, maybe you don't need books. That could be possible, right? Yeah. Um, but to say, like, here are the possible vectors that books and ideas and art can, you know, push us down if we want to go down those roads, rather than just this sort of general, I don't know, diagnosis of an intellectual malaise that's going to rot us out from our very core. Like, <laughs> I just don't think that's going to happen. Um, even, even as much as I want books to be central or at least important in small pockets, like, I can't make the case that if books all went away tomorrow that, you know, we're going we're gonna to fade into the West. You know, I just don't see that that's yeah. going to happen. Um, anyway, so, sorry for getting into some of my own... Uh, in my own wonderings about what we, well, it's also, you and I also write about books. So I think it's in front yeah. of mind for us as well. It's like, what can we do that's not hideously boring? Um, or, or insulting. Yeah, or insulting. Yeah, or just tiresome um, at all. All right. Well, we're going to jump from that right into yeah. our next sponsor. And Audible is back. Audible Yay. is the leading provider of audiobooks um, with a, over 150,000 titles to choose from fiction, nonfiction. Bestsellers, you got them. Every major category available. Um, there are free apps on your iPhone, Android, Windows Phone, tablets. Got them all. All the apps are free. They also support over 500 MP3 players. So if you still have your old uh, Creative Zen uh, 128 megabyte double <laughs> A powered uh, stick MP3 player like I had back in 1999. Um, you might still be able to use Audible. I don't know. You should check it out. There's a good chance. Uh, Unlike streaming or rental services, you own the files. They're yours. Um, You can access your books anytime, anywhere from your phone. You can switch back and forth between your Kindle and audiobook without losing your place. And actually, one news story I had, but I'm just rolling it into the read here, is that Amazon added the ability this week to switch between Audible and Kindle with one tap. So if you're reading in the Kindle version and you have the Audible version too, you can press the button and it'll just start reading it. So if like, you got to stop reading it to go, I don't know, uh, put on your headphones and go mow the lawn, you can just plug in your headphones, hit the button, and you're ready to go. You're done mowing the lawn, you want to come back, sit down on the couch, take off your headphones, hit the button, and it'll find your spot right back in the tech. So a seamless reading environment. Pretty soon we're getting to the point where you can read, be reading at all times, no matter what you're doing, Woo-hoo. <laughs> um, which we're all looking forward to. So here's the deal. So you can get a free audiobook of your choice and a free 30-day trial membership if you go to audiblepodcast.com slash bookriot. That gets you started. Um, I know you and I are both into audiobooks in a big way. Are you a relatively recent convert to audiobooks? I can't remember. 
I am. Yeah. I'm pretty recent. Pretty recent. I'm relatively recent too. I actually got into podcasts first and then sort of made the jump to audiobooks from there. Um, my pick this week is actually not one I'm reading, but Michelle um, asked to have, uh, I do the Audible purchasing and downloading just because it's a little wonky the way we have it set up, um, <laughs> for Hillary Clinton, Clinton's new book, Hard Choices. Oh, yeah. It's 30 hours long. Oh my gosh. So <laughs> she's got some uh, Hillary Clinton time coming. Does she narrate it? I believe so. I awesome. believe so. Um, uh, and she had a very interesting by the book piece this week. The New York Times is this, this regular feature called by the book where they ask people about you know their favorite books. And Hillary Clinton was the interviewee this week. And she seems like a super serious reader, by the way. Yeah. Did you look at that piece? I, I did. Yeah. I did. She's into like Hillary Mantel. Yeah, she she likes a good range. She likes some genre fiction. Her guilty pleasure, she said, were diet and self help and gardening books, which I thought was very cool and honest of her um, to to talk about. Uh, anyway, so that was the one that's the the big one that came out this week, I think, on Tuesday. Hard choices by Hillary Clinton. And you said you are in the middle of a seeming a, a similarly long slog of an audiobook. Yeah, it's only thirteen hours. Oh, it's only so thirteen it's not, hours. Okay. Yeah. Well, it's the second volume. I'm I'm in the middle of um, Winston Churchill's second volume in the history of, the, of English speaking people. The second volume is <laughs> right. uh, the New World. Um, I read the first one just straight, and so I decided to see how it worked out on audio. Mm -hmm. And it's of course it's read by this like very crotchety sounding old Brit, and uh, it's great. Mm -hmm. um, and you're interested in it, but is it good? That's a weird question. I know. Is the narration good, or, or just like the book? The Oh, <laughs> that's a that's a that's a different question when it's audio. Yes, um, absolutely. Uh, it's well hilarious. <laughs> it's awful history. Can I say that about? Yeah, sure. Central? Why not? It's so bad. Okay, so like I I was a history major. I'm really like kind of picky about this, but it's it's so bad. Just about the historiography is uh, really wonky. He's he's very into. I mean, it's Winston Churchill, so it's very like. And then the English people went forth in victory, mm. and there are no women, and there are no people who are not white. Mm ever in right. the history of English-speaking people. I mean, maybe they are. I'm only in volume two. But um, it's just, it's like reading a speech, <laughs> one of Winston Churchill's World War II speeches for 350 Which pages. Which has its merits, but are you right. saying that historical accuracy and inclusion may not be foremost among his virtues? Yes. Yeah. And he wrote it in the 50s. Oh, so it's just very, you know, it's, hard it's to, exactly what you would expect from always, Winston Churchill. In my imagination, like, Winston Churchill died on, like, VE Day. <laughs> you know, like that no, was no. it. So he's coming down off his high of how awesome right. people in England are and then decides to write about world history. Probably not the most unbiased moment to be writing a world history. Not so much. When you and your side just won the most significant military conflict of all time. Yeah. So um, like his analysis of, of Catholicism and uh, <laughs> Tudor stuff, it's just really, it's That's great. really it's interesting. It's so good. It's so great. Um, so audiblepodcast.com slash book riot. You can get a free audiobook and a free 30-day trial. Do try it out. I think if you haven't tried an audiobook, you'll find a lot of time in your day in the car, walking the dog, doing the dishes, um, walking around Target sometimes, <laughs> you know, really? standing in line at Trader Joe's or something like that. Wherever it is you find these little extra times, I think you'll find that there's a lot more there and be a nice piece of your reading life. I'm big on nonfiction on audiobooks. Me um, too. I don't really do fiction um, on audio. I don't know why I'm not prepared to explain or defend it. That's just me. So, all right, let's do one other Amazon piece. Um, Amazon always does an annual America's Most Well-Read Cities, which is for them means the people who bought the most Amazon stuff per capita. <laughs> so it's a horribly flawed list. Um, but I always find it interesting. Um, and the top five this year, Alexandria, Virginia, Miami, Florida, Knoxville, Tennessee, Seattle, Washington, and Orlando, Florida. Florida? Yeah, Florida. What are you doing down there? Um, and I think this story came out when we were first podcasting last year, and we talked a little bit about, like, one thing that's being shown, there's a couple of factors I think you should think about when looking at this list. One is any sort of highly educated town um, or college town, large college town, is going to be do well this. So Ann Arbor, yep. 6, Berkeley, 7, Cambridge, Richmond. 8. Is Richmond on there somewhere? Richmond's 19. Richmond's 19, yeah. Um, we have the big state school. Right, yeah, yeah. Um, not surprisingly, Seattle is 4. 
Alexandria, Virginia. I mean, it's D.C., basically suburb. Yeah. So the two, I think, the three I think are most interesting are Miami, Florida, Knoxville, Tennessee, and Orlando, Florida. Because they don't think of those as like super, they're not, they're not really um, big literary hubs or anything like that. They're not big metropolitan areas. Um, because, you know, you, you don't see Chicago, Brooklyn, New York, Austin, places like that. Mm-hmm. So um, I linked this the other day in Critical Linking, and one of our readers commented who's, who lives in Knoxville, and he says, Knoxville is a book desert. It's a metropolitan area of more than a million people, mm-hmm. and they have like one used bookstore and one Barnes & Noble. So of course, they're going to buy a lot of stuff from Amazon, or per oh, capita yeah. buy a lot more from, from Amazon. So I wonder, and I, I don't know anything about Orlando Florida or um, what was the other one that was on there? Oh, Miami. Miami. But it very well could be the same situation where Amazon is sort of the only game in town and they suck up whatever book interest there is because there's nowhere else um, to funnel it. So I don't know. I mean, maybe Knoxville, Tennessee, if you're looking to open up an independent bookstore, maybe you should Might go be there. Might to go. Right? Well, it's, in the, down here in the fine print, they broke it down by a format, I guess. And so Cambridge, Massachusetts bought the most print books, but mm. Knoxville bought the most Kindle books hmm. Al- of, of any city. Inferno was the best-selling overall book in Alexandria, Virginia, followed by Divergent and The Goldfinch. And the so, Goldfinch. so even for all the, the PhDs and grad, um, grad uh, uh, advanced degrees, people that work in Alexandria, they're still reading Inferno and Divergent. Um, Kindle, Tennessee, uh, excuse me, Kindle, Tennessee. Well, might as well be called Kindle, Tennessee. <laughs> no, Knoxville, no. Tennessee purchased the most Kindle books per capita. I mean, that's a, that's a sign there that they need a print bookstore, isn't it? That uh-huh. I bet you could do pretty well there. Maybe, maybe, uh, maybe I'll take Where's it. Parnassus? Was that in? Parnassus is, is in, in Nashville? um, Nashville. Oh, okay. Nashville, Tennessee, I believe. Is that right? I think I don't know. That's oh, why I okay, asked. Yeah, I think I, I'm pretty sure it's in Nashville, but I'll look that up. Um, let's see. Yeah, Richmond, Virginia. They're number nineteen. You guys have the fountain. Do you have a lot of Barnes and Nobles in Richmond? Do you have them? Uh, just two. Just two. I think. Wait. Oh, no, Richmond's three. a pretty good sized town, really. Yeah. For just two the, Barnes and Noble. We're split in the middle by uh, the James River, so I'm trying to think of like, oh, how right. many there are on either side <laughs> yeah. of the river because people don't cross the mm-hmm, river. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I think there are three or four actually. Okay, Barnes and Nobles. Yeah, I'd like to see. Maybe we can get the 538 guys to like cross-reference this with the number of Barnes and Nobles per capita in major metropolitan areas and see if there's any like is it inversely proportional or does it still line up pretty well? Oh um, yeah, I guess that's we have something... tons of used bookstores too. Oh, is that right? Tons. Yeah. Oh, that's like, interesting. In every strip mall is a used bookstore. Huh? Almost. There's a lot. Um, well, that's interesting. I, you know, that's an. I wish someone would do that study. Like, what, what has the most used bookstores per capita? I wonder why Richmond. Do you? Th- it seems to have more per capita than you would expect. Uh, yes. Yeah. I okay. would say. All right. Hmm. Especially it, it for today. Yeah. yeah. I wonder why that is. I'm, I'm not going to try to think about it too much. <laughs> Anything else on this uh, list that you find interesting? Oh, I just want it to be different. Why? <laughs> like, I want it to not be based on what it's based on. Oh, I want this yeah. to be a different study, basically. Right. Yes. Well, there's another no. study we talk about, which is, it's done by a college, and I can't remember what, but its methodology is all weird, too. Um, and they measure things that it's hard to, I guess what I just want is, Maybe library checkouts and book purchases per capita, and that's it, right? Yeah. I mean, like, that's also not. I mean, that's from not, any retailer. Yeah, that's not definitive. That's just the the best bad proxy I can think of. Um. Yeah, library plus book purchases. Yeah, I wonder if some of these places don't have robust um, library systems. Be interesting to know as well. I want to know where New York is on this list. Like, I want more than the top twenty. Well, the thing you have to remember about New York is like, there's a lot of talk about how it's all literary and whatever, but New York is enormous, and there's vast swaths of Brooklyn, Queens, and the Bronx that don't have bookstores of any kind. Um, I I live further into Central Brooklyn, and there's there hey there are four or five really good independent bookstores in Brooklyn, but there's also two Barnes and Nobles and those independent bookstores are clustered in the more affluent parts 
the most affluent parts of Brooklyn, but you get out towards Canarsie or Bed-Stuy or Crown Heights or Ditmas Park where I live or further south to Colony Island and there's no, there's not a Barnes and Noble, there's no used bookstores, there's nothing. So mm -hmm. I think it's really skewed and top heavy. If you live in a neighborhood where there's bookstores, that's great. Um, but if you don't, it's really, really hard um, to get to one. So anyway, that, that would be my, that would be my interpretation. Okay. Also, the cities on here are relatively affluent, it seems to me, on the whole. But that's you know that's maybe just um, bias. There's so much Florida on here. A lot like, of Florida. There's three more down at the bottom: Gainesville, Clearwater, Tallahassee. Yeah, I wonder if What's they going just. On, Florida? I don't hear about a lot. I mean, again, I follow a lot of independent bookstores on Twitter because I find what they're talking about to be very interesting in terms of things to read and trends. Mm -hmm. I don't know that I follow a Florida bookstore that I can think of. Um, again, that's total bias, but that's the only data I have to, to talk about at the particular yeah. moment. Um, and a lot of people it, read down there, a lot of retirees. Southern Booksellers Association, when I worked at Fountain, uh, I worked at an independent bookstore yeah. for like a year. Um, the Southern Booksellers Association meetings were like always in Florida, hmm. even, even though there's no... Well, everyone meets in Florida, but no one wants to stay there. That's true. Okay. <laughs> Except for apparently all these people who live there. Except and for read. all the all of you fine Floridians who are, are beautiful and smart and clever, and I would never <laughs> say anything to bemerge and people the Sunshine like you. State. Yeah. Right. <laughs> uh, okay. So let's get on for that. Let's do our cool yet depressing thing of the week. Okay. Um, this is from Atlas Obscura, which is a website I had never heretofore heard of. Um, but this is a story about book towns which are towns across, I think they're all Europe. Is that right? Is um, all European? I think all the ones featured here all the are ones in featured. Europe, yeah. So basically what happens is there are a lot of these European industrial towns that have lost their economies um, and commercial areas. And what they've done instead of having just empty storefronts and sort of dilapidated buildings is they filled them with used and antiquarian bookshops. Host, they're hosting events. Um, and just, you know, doing little free come-and-go, take-as-you-will libraries. And the book towns are officially united through the International Organization of Book Towns, um, which started in 1961 with Hay on Wye, I don't know if that's how you say that, I, my Welsh <laughs> is not what it could be, in Wales, which I think Brenna did a, a post on a while back, I can't remember, someone in Bookwright did a post on Hay on Wye. Um, but apparently it's part of a larger group of book towns. Um, there is... Redu, Belgium. There's Fjarland, Norway. Boy, all you Europeans are really going to laugh at me if you're listening. Which was only accessible by boat until <laughs> right. 1985. I feel like that needs to be pointed out. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Sedberg, England. And Uranus, Spain. And those are, the, those are the ones featured here. And the pictures are amazing. Yeah. Um, they've got like open air book markets. They filled old cellars with used and antiquarian books. Um, they have dockside little free libraries, little shelves that are like against the ruins of ancient castles. Castles. Ugh. Which it's is like a fairy tale. Which is awesome, but as you said, this is an awesome yet depressing story depressing. because it's <laughs> they're doing this because all of their business is <laughs> gone. gone. I know. <laughs> like, oh. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty and it's very idyllic looking, but it, underneath it is like a tale of economic depression. <laughs> I get. I mean, that's really depressing. that's really depressing. But I guess this is better than just being depressing. I feel like this is like there's like a um, Billy Elliot story movie in this. Do you see what I'm getting okay. at? Like this old mining town, which there's not much to hope for, but some guy gets a crazy idea. We're going to turn it into a book town. Oh yeah. And there's like the fundraising, and we we think you're crazy, but then. He really does connect with his father because his father loved books. And <laughs> you know what I'm you know what I'm saying here yes, a little yes, bit. Yes. Um, so we'll link to the show notes here. And there are small towns. They're, they don't appear to be anywhere close to sort of the major European hubs. Um, that the Honesty Bookshop in Sedberg, that it's you just they have two thousand books and it's on the honor system that you're going to put your two pounds in the little box and take the book. Um, and the one in Belgium is ha it's a village with 400 residents and 20 bookstores. I'm going to How is that? I'm going to guess they work? don't rank highly on Amazon's list. Yeah, probably. They don't probably don't do a lot of Amazon business. These 400 people These 400 do not people. do a lot of Amazon business. They, so I wonder if it, the thing I don't see is if it's worked at all. Like have they attracted a bunch of tourists? H has it helped at all? 
I don't know. Well, this one, the Belgian village ha- started as a book town in 1984, so I guess it's. I guess it's been. Working. I guess it's not a. I guess it's not completely abandoned, right? Yeah, I um, wonder if, if there are people who do the book towns like as their summer vacation. Well, Let's that's what do we're doing next year. I don't know if I told you, but okay. all the book riot people were going on a um, a book on town tour of uh, rural Europe. You're going to get so many emails about whether or not you're kidding <laughs> when this goes up. That would be fun. We could organize I, like a trip, like a, like a traveling uh, tour band where we just okay, all sit next to each other on the plane and don't talk to each other at all and read. kind of sounds great, doesn't it? Oh, that sounds awesome. That's what t- Rebecca and I do when yes. we travel together. We just sit, sit next to each other and, and read, read books. And we're all, we're, each okay, we're all getting on the train to Spain now, and we all open up our books, and everyone is dead silent. Oh. And we all go, we have dinner, and then we just go back to our rooms and read in quiet, and no one bothers us. It sounds kind of great, actually. Maybe we should do we this. Need, let's make this happen. Yeah, so if you're into the Booktown Book Riot book tour, we're just going to keep adding <laughs> a book. Um, you send a self-addressed stamped envelope to, no, I'm just kidding. Um, <laughs> With airfare inside. I wonder, I wonder if one of these is more, the Hay on Why, I think, is the most famous of them, but maybe it's because of the one I've heard of. Again, that's good old confirmation bias. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of these, if you're ever going to do the grand literary tour of the world, you better go to a book town, I would say. I wonder what else would be on that tour. Hmm. I like how the, the book town in Spain, it seems like the shops are all about one thing. Like there's a wine literature Well, that's what shop. I would do if I had 20 bookshops and 400 people. Yeah, so they took, it seems like they just took a big bookstore and t- separated all the mm-hmm. sections into their own individual little bookstores and then stuck Does them the in Does the wine like, bookstore serve wine? Cellars. They should if they don't. Well, it's in a wine cellar. Oh, okay. So. But, but the wine cellar picture is just full of books. They've taken out all the, I think they maybe threw out the baby with the bathwater there. Yeah. Bit, it seems to me. All right, I've got to do Rebecca's new books section, which I'm not very good at because <laughs> I only like boring literary fiction no one else likes. But you know what? It's boring literary fiction week here on the Book Riot podcast. Um, and I'm picking two new releases. Um, and I'm going to again mispronounce an English uh, non-amer- non-standard um, word. Uh, Tim Winton is an Australian novelist who I really like. Um, I've read, I think, four or five of his novels, uh, including if you're interested, if, you're, if, you've got a, if you're wanting a, a literary summer read, um, Breath by Tim Winton is a coming-of-age story about surfing set on the west coast of Australia that's awesome and beautiful and sad and great and everything you want from a coming-of-age novel. But I'll recommend that. That's a backlist title. But his new book is called Eerie, E-Y-R-I-E, The, the Book Person's Malady, which is to not know how to say the words that you've seen a million times before. Um, this is about an, a man who is a former environmentalist and activist who found him, finds himself broke because of scandal um, and trying to put his life back together. And then he, he, he hooks up with a woman and her kid who are struggling even worse. And the story is about how do you help people that you care about when you yourself are in no position to take care of yourself, <laughs> um, <laughs> which is sort of a Tim Winton kind of thing, of flawed people trying to help other flawed people and whether or not it helps, or how do you help? Um, so that's one pick, um, Eerie by Tim Winton. The other one... I think it's Irie. Irie? Did you look it up for me? I think. Well, yes, but, I, well, but you also I'm basing know. this entirely on Game of Thrones. Oh, okay, Irie. So E-Y-R-I-E. I should have looked that up before. Um, mm-hmm. I'm also going with um, Tom Rackman's new novel, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers, which is about the young American owner of an isolated bookstore in Welsh countryside. Hey! Believe it or not. Um, and she fills her life with a lot of books, but not a lot of people. And then she gets into hijinks. And I think that's what I'm going to say about it. So kind of a, kind of a bookish wallflower who gets up, who gets caught up in hijinks. And, and Tom Rockman is a great novelist, a lot of fun. This is the Dial Pressed. He wrote the book called The Imperfectionist, which was kind of a big book for those of us who follow um, literary fiction that no one cares about. A few years <laughs> ago, uh, The Rise and Fall of Great Powers by Tom Rockman. And then we have the notable new paperback release this week is Dr. Sleep by Stephen King. I don't even know what this is about because I'm so much of a horror story wuss that I won't even read the description. But For real? I know a lot of people <laughs> are wait are I know there's a lot of paper paperback waiters out there. They're waiting for paperbacks, and this is one that a lot of people have been. It's a sequel to The Shining. Oh, that's right. I knew that. I knew that. Okay. I knew that. I read that through my fingers um, <laughs> on the internet when it came out a few 
weeks ago. I guess that's our show. That was a fast hour. Jeez Louise. <laughs> um, as always, you can find us writing at bookwrite.com. Amanda Nelson, you have a different Twitter handle than the last time. You switch it over to I'm Amanda Nelson. I am A M A N D A N E L S O N. Actually, your name is super easy to spell. I shouldn't have to spell that out. Uh, you can find me on <laughs> just Twitter. Just like it sounds. Just like it's well. Just like it sounds, Amanda Nelson. Um, but I am before it because you are Amanda I Nelson. I am. Uh, you can find me on Twitter. I'm Reading Ape as always. If you've got feedback for the show, especially if it's pronunciation guides for non-American <laughs> words, you can shoot us an email at podcastofbookriot.com. You can find the show notes to this show. You're going to want to check out the YouTube video of a three-year-old reading a Billy Collins poem. You can yeah, find show notes at bookriot.com slash podcast. Uh, I think that is it. We will be back next week in some configuration. I'm not sure who's on the show next week. It's a surprise now. It's, it's like it's like a little um, Cracker Jack surprise where you're excited for it and then it's sort of underwhelming because it's actually a paper crown. Um, thanks so much for listening, everybody, and we'll talk to you next week. Bye.